Hello there. This is a bit weird. Uh, so yesterday I gave a talk um, following the amazing Shah Rasiti um, uh, from Teeson. If you don't know Shah, um, he's a compelling speaker and a commercial law weapon. He gave this great talk on guarantees and on indemnities. Um, this was hosted by Robert Schneider, who's at Ebsworths, who's um, a commercial litigator from way back and is also amazing. And it was this talk at um, this conference that Ten put on about commercial drafting uh, and precision. And I had decided to record it. I brought along my telephone and I brought along this microphone that I'm now speaking into. And I thought I was very, very clever because I was giving the talk, blah, 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 blah. But I was also recording the talk. So I was thinking, James, you're the smartest man in the world. What a genius. Uh, you are leveraging this work you're doing right now. Uh, and you're later going to be able to assist people listening to your podcast with it. Hooray, hooray, pat on the back, all that sort of stuff. Now, of course, with my silly hand gestures that I make while I'm speaking, I managed to disconnect the microphone at some stage in that presentation. And so um, yesterday's talk, and I say yesterday's for a reason, yesterday's talk that followed on from Shah's talk on guarantees, indemnities and warranties, and it had some great comments from Robert, uh, is sadly lost forever. And what you have instead is me sitting in my office with a cup of coffee about to work through my notes on exclusion clauses. So with that long-winded intro, um, I hope you're happy to strap yourself in. Um, this talk yesterday went for a nice juicy, uh, almost an hour, and that was with some great questions and great comments. I expect sitting down here in my lonesome, it'll be a little bit quicker. <laughs> Whether that's better or worse is something I'll leave to you. But as I work through this paper, my real hope is that you take some value from it. We're talking exclusion clauses. And what I've called the talk today is you're out of here. And so uh, by way of opening, the question I want to put to you is, well, what does the exclusion clause exclude? My point of view in this paper is that if you're a transactional lawyer negotiating the scope and the operation of an exclusion clause, what I say is that you're going to be assisted by understanding the case law. So uh, my commercial colleagues down the hall, or, or as is the case right now, a couple of offices along, I say might be aided in their work by a few comments from a litigator. And that spirit informs this paper. So it's been said before that the court is reluctant to interpret exclusion clauses broadly and the court's preference is instead to interpret narrowly, this sort of dichotomy of broad versus narrow. And what I want to put to you today is that that's not quite the position I take. And while focus is important, what I would really encourage any commercial drafts person or anyone negotiating an exclusion clause to focus on is not broad versus narrow, it is instead uh, clear versus ambiguous. Um, the court's approach, if we're thinking about exclusion clauses, is if the clause is unambiguous, if it's clear, well, it simply does what it says. It works on its face. And it is only in the case of ambiguity that we then turn our attentions to the relevant principles that might lead us towards contra preferentum. What I referred to yesterday, and I suppose I'll refer to today, is the path to contra preferentum. So if we take this perspective, what I say is that a commercial lawyer's north star when drafting or negotiating an exclusion 
need not necessarily be make it narrow. Instead, I say this with respect, the priority might instead be make it clear, make it unambiguous. So what are we going to discuss today? <laughs> what did we discuss yesterday? <laughs> we're going to work through initially the why of exclusion clauses. Then we're going to turn to the law relating to exclusion clauses. And we're going to spend a little bit of time lingering on some real life examples of exclusion clauses in the wild of how these decisions unfold. Following that, we're going to have a brief aside regarding warning signs. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to convince you of the relevance of discussing the law of warning signs when we get there. And then I'll be making some practical suggestions that you can take, um, hopefully, that assist you when you're drafting or negotiating an exclusion clause. And my real hope today, frankly, goes little further than hoping you find it of value. So let's get started with the why of exclusion clauses. What I say is that when you're drafting or negotiating an exclusion clause, taking a moment to reflect on the why of the exclusion clause really assists you. Now, at heart, an exclusion clause is a tool for allocating risk. What party is bearing what risk? And that's fine. It may even be that that risk is only the risk to the extent of who's responsible for getting what insurance. And what I really want to hammer home today is that an exclusion clause ought not be treated as a breed apart from other contractual clauses. It didn't descend from the sky. It's not an alien. Um, it is merely a product of the commercial relationship, the meeting of the minds between the parties to the contract. So I don't want you to think of it as magical. I don't want you to think of it as terrible. It is a commercial term for allocating risk and it ought to be treated as such. And one compelling reason for adopting that approach uh, is that that's the approach the court adopts. <laughs> but I say that another reason for adopting that approach is that um, when you are advising on the terms of an exclusion clause, precision and close consideration is going to be pivotal. And views like, oh, it's just a boilerplate, or perhaps the more reckless and terrifying contra-preferentum will save us, those sort of views fall really well short of what your clients deserve and they fall well short of what they're paying you for. Um, we can't just say, oh, this is just like a clause about counterparts. Oh, this is just like a governing jurisdiction clause. No, an exclusion clause ought to be treated as a genuine reflection of a settled commercial meeting of minds rather than some breed apart. So let's have a think about the law as it applies to exclusion clauses. Now, it's easy to be dismissive of exclusion clauses or to jump too quickly to contra-preferentum. And I say that it's easy to jump too quickly to contra-preferentum because uh, it is a mistake I have made more than once uh, in uh, preliminary consideration of uh, an exclusion clause in relation to advising um, our clients. So uh, now that I've made that mistake <laughs> and spent the amount of time on it, hopefully I can save you having do the same. Um, and what I really want to uh, ram home, in fact, why don't we recap, what is, what is contra-pref? When we're talking about contra-preferentum, let's just ground our discussion. Um, contra-preferentum is a principle that if there's any doubt 
about the meaning or the scope of an exclusion, that doubt, that ambiguity should be resolved against the party seeking to rely on the clause. Does that make sense? So we've got our person who says, oh, that's excluded, that's excluded. If it's an insurer, we don't have to pay. So if there's any doubt about the meaning or the scope of that exclusion, hey, if you're standing on your head and it's a Tuesday, um, we don't have to pay. If there's doubt about that, then that doubt should be resolved against, in this silly example, against the insurer. So that's contra preferentum. Doubt or ambiguity gets resolved against the party attempting to rely on the clause. So I just wanted to set that out now before we march on, but now let's keep marching on. Um, as practitioners, um, while contra preferentum is very interesting and can be very scary, um, it's quite important to remember that it's actually going to be the rare exclusion clause that doesn't do what it sets out to do. A commanding majority of exclusion clauses do what they say. Uh, and um, when you are negotiating, when you are drafting, and indeed when you're advising on an agreement that's already been entered into, it would be a mistake to assume that, oh, here's the exclusion clause, whack a -doo. let's see if this can be picked apart or if there's some peculiar law that relates to it. It's going to be the rare exclusion clause that doesn't do what it says. And the basis for contrapref and the basis for the uh, position I put earlier as well is that parties are not to lightly have been taken to cut down the remedies available to them unless there are clear words. So if I've got rights, the court is not going to lightly find I've abandoned them unless there are really clear words saying I have definitely abandoned them. That's essentially the public policy behind contrapref. So what does that mean for us when we're thinking about exclusion clauses? It means our first step when we're looking at a clause or when we're reflecting on drafting one is one of straight up contractual construction. What is the natural and ordinary meaning of the words read in the context of the whole contract? What does it mean? What would a reasonable business-like interpretation of those words be? Uh, what would a reasonable business person in the position of the parties have understood those words to mean? And if the answer to that question has ambiguity, then that's one issue. But if there's no ambiguity, then the inquiry can just proceed. If the exclusion clause says, um, X, Y, and Z is excluded, and on the face of it, uh, that is obvious, and based on the surrounding circumstances, well, <laughs> we could talk about Cadell for another time, maybe, but if it is clear what the clause does, fine. We can progress our inquiry to other issues. It is only if there is ambiguity present that our inquiry can turn towards contra preferentum. So let's hammer that home. If it's clear what the clause does, it acts on its face. If there is ambiguity, we take the path towards contra preferentum. And so we turn to the rhetorical question, what is ambiguity? Now, it's been said that ambiguity is itself a word of ambiguous reference, and I suspect as we're trying to wrap our heads around this area, um, there's something to that. 
but um, there is a very useful, uh, <laughs> very useful excerpt delivered with typical priestly and clarity that essentially allows us to say ambiguity is having two or more plausible meanings. Put another way, uh, after you ascertain the meaning of the words, and after applying all those usual canons of construction, the usual methods we use to understand what a contract means, if the, interest, if the instrument, if the clause, if the term still conveys a double or a multiple meaning, then it is rightly thought of as ambiguous. A couple of important points. Um, amb ambiguity is not difficulty in understanding. So it is not merely, Oof, this is a bit of a confusing clause. It is the presence of multiple meanings, more than one. So what happens if we're confronted with ambiguity? What happens if, having taken this construction path, we find, we construe the meaning of the exclusion clause to have multiple meanings? Well, we work, or we walk indeed, uh, down the path towards contra preferentum. We don't go straight there. We walk down that path. And, and I'm sorry if that metaphor's <laughs> a little trite. Where two meanings are open, it's proper to adopt the meaning that will avoid irrational and unjust consequences. And I should say, sorry, this is a very good moment to say that um, this talk is the subject of a paper that I've set out the citations in some detail. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, James, what are these cases? Where are you taking these principles from? <laughs> Uh, do just ping me a note on, on you know, whatever platform it is we're interacting on or an email or whatever, and I can, uh, I can send the paper along to you. That's fine. I've got no difficulty with doing that. Um, so let me just repeat the point we're at. So where two meanings are open, which is to say where there is ambiguity, that multiple meaning point, it's proper to adopt the meaning that would avoid irrational and unjust consequences. So remember, we're walking down this path to contrapref. In the event of ambiguity, the next step on the path, we want to avoid a con sorry. We want to give a construction that would avoid irrational consequences that it is unlikely that the parties intended. So, if a set of words have multiple meanings, and we are looking at construing what the proper operation of an exclusion clause is, we say, look, it's pretty irrational and unlikely that the parties intended it to be that. So if we can say that, then we can choose one of those multiple meanings. The next step down the path is to say that the court can depart from the strictly literal meaning of a particular expression and place an alternative construction that is the probable intention of the parties. So we can even depart from the words themselves in their strict, literal sense and say, look, it's probably the intention of the parties when they agreed on this clause that you know, meaning one of the available multiple meanings was the meaning they wanted. And so let's remind ourselves what we're doing there. We found an ambiguous term. We said, well... Uh, have we avoided irrational and unjust consequences? 
Well, if we've done that and we still have multiple meanings, we say, well, have we avoided irrational consequences that it's unlikely the parties intended? If we've done that and there are still multiple meanings, then we march on. And we say, well, have we departed from the strictly literal meaning and thought about the probable intention of the parties? If the answer is yes and we still have ambiguity, then we turn to contra preferentum. Then we say the ambiguity ought to be resolved against the party seeking to rely on the clause. And so that quite naturally, I hope you agree, takes us to a quick aside about insurance policies and exclusion clauses. And for reasons which may be pretty obvious, um, basically this insurance policies generally uh, have some exclusion clauses in there. Um, a lot of the litigation, a lot of the chin rubbing in relation to exclusion clauses uh, often has an insurance policy sort of context. When an insurance company prepares a document, the insurer is bound and required to make its meaning as clear as possible. But I say that, um, and I add a caution that's come down from the High Court, um, a policy of insurance, even a statutory one that's required by legislation, is not to be treated as some bizarre, different breed of agreement. It is a commercial contract and it should be given a business-like interpretation. And as you interpret that insurance policy, you pay attention to the language used by the parties, the commercial circumstances, and the objects that the policy is intended to secure. And I endorse that excerpt from a decision of McCann and Switzerland Insurance. That's a, it was the High Court in 2000. I've got the citation in the paper for you. Um, in essence to say, or in essence to remind you and to remind us all when we're looking at exclusion clauses and insurance policies generally, that these things are not magical, are not particularly separate from any other commercial dealings that you might find in the marketplace. They represent an agreement reached between parties who intend to be bound by the terms, uh, some of which may be ambiguous, and if they relate to exclusion clauses, then uh, it may well be that the march towards contra preferentum needs to be undertaken. So let's turn to some decisions about exclusion clauses. We've had a pretty serious chat about the law as it relates. Now let's turn our attention to how the exclusion clauses are to be treated in the wild. So the first decision I'm going to turn to is uh, Santos Coffee and Direct Freight. It's a New South Wales Court of Appeal decision of 2010. We've got ourselves a coffee manufacturer and a distributor, and they enter into an arrangement that's governed by two different contracts. And essentially what the deal is, is that the coffee manufacturer will manufacture some coffee, put it onto some pallets. The distributor one week will come and collect those pallets, you know, presumably deliver the coffee wherever it needs to go, and then the following week will return empty pallets. And it will return the same number of empty pallets as it collected full pallets the previous week. So in week one, it collects five full pallets. In week two, it returns five empty pallets. That's the plan. Now, this thing uh, rolls along 
for a considerable time <laughs> until one January when our coffee manufacturer reviews the position and finds that over the previous three years, it's short over a thousand pallets that the distributors failed to return. Uh, and it turned out the distributor was almost continually in breach of the agreement. And so our manufacturer <laughs> makes a claim, says, hey, <laughs> where are all these pallets? Let me refresh your memory about the number of contracts that governed the arrangement. There are two. Uh, there's one contract that I've referred to in the paper as a master agreement, and that's the sort of contract you might be familiar with seeing. It's big, it's long, and there are a lot of clauses in it, and, and you know, it's printed on paper, and it's signed, and that sort of thing. And it says that the distributor, and I'm paraphrasing, shall be discharged from liability in connection with goods unless the claim is brought within three months from their delivery. Right, so that's an exclusion to say anything older than three months ago is excluded. And that's in that master agreement. And that exclusion is in connection with the goods. And just to spoil the ending a little bit, remember that the actual dispute is about pallets and not goods. And we'll come back to that. The second contract is found in dockets. And these are literally what they sound like. Little bits of paper where a a coffee manufacturer and the distributor driver will sign, yep, collected three full pallets, yep, tick, yep, sign on the back. And one of the bold caps uh, terms, oh, sorry, no, it's just all caps, it's not, it's not bold, I don't think, Say on that docket says, no claim for pallets owing by the distributor will be accepted after 90 days. And again, just to spoil things a bit, can I say that while the master agreement was in connection with goods, the docket agreement, that second agreement, says no claim for pallets. And so, remember that our coffee manufacturer is short over a thousand pallets, makes a claim, and the question is, well, can it claim for the entire three-year period that it's short, or is it just restricted to those 90 days? Now, at first instance, the first time the matter comes to court, uh, the clause in that master agreement was found to be binding. Um, do you remember the master agreement was the big bit of paper that said uh, you can't bring a claim for three months in connection with the goods? Now, the Court of Appeal disagreed and found that the first instance judge had erred because the claim was about pallets and the claim was not in connection with the goods. But what the Court of Appeal went on to say is that Sorry, let me withdraw that and backtrack just a moment. Um, the court found that the phrase in connection with was capable of having different meanings depending on its context. And you already know what happens if we've got different meanings. We click through the path to contra preferentum. And here the court found the clause, here the court of appeal found the clause ought to be read contra preferentum. And so if you apply that contra pref lens, if you resolve the clause against the person trying to rely on it, uh, you find that the master agreement clause does not assist our distributor, meaning that the exclusion does not apply, meaning that the master agreement exclusion doesn't stand in the way of our coffee manufacturer making a claim for the full three years. But then we turn to the docket. 
And remember the docket explicitly says no claim for pallets owing by the distributor will be accepted after 90 days. And in short, the parties accepted that had contractual status, uh, the exclusion acted as it appeared, and the poor old coffee manufacturer, or depending on where your sympathies lie, was left in the position where it was precluded from making any claim over 90 days due to the clarity of the exclusion clause in the docket contract. And so we turn to our next decision. This is a decision called XL Insurance and BNY Trust. Uh, and this is the appeal uh, decision. So this is the New South Wales Court of Appeal 2019. Um, uh, BNY, just by way of background, is an abbreviation that essentially represents um, uh, being a sub-entity, if I can put it that way, of the Bank of New York. Uh, it's lending money and we've got a dispute about valuations. So we've got a lender who's lending money and that lender is relying on valuations in lending that money. Now, um, sadly, depending on your point of view, uh, the loans were defaulted on and that lender tried but failed to realise the property, to sell it, get some money in, in order to satisfy those outstanding monies. Now, the lender was unable to do that and so it turned its attention to suing the valuers or pursuing the valuers. No, suing the valuers, sorry. Um, it said, right, uh, we lent in reliance on these valuations, we're coming for you. And the valuers, in turn, cross-claimed against their insurer. And what we have here is a separate question determination, as these exclusion clause pieces of litigation sometimes are. So what is the clause? Why shouldn't the insurer pay? Well, the clause says, and again I'm paraphrasing, and I'll probably do it clumsily because it's a reasonably long clause, but bear with me if you'd be so kind. Um, the insurer will not be liable to indemnify for loss that is attributable to a valuation for a lender that is not an authorised deposit-taking institution supervised by APRA unless there is a prudent lender clause in the agreement governing the valuation. Does that make sense? The insurer says, we're not going to pay if there's loss that comes from a valuation in relation to a lender that is not an ADTI, an authorised deposit-taking institution supervised by APRA, unless there's this prudent lender clause in the valuation agreement. You already know what I'm going to say. Um, the lender is not an ADTI. It is not supervised by APRA on, in that context. And the valuation did not include a prudent lender clause. And what the first instance judge said was, well, the absence of the prudent lender clause didn't cause the loss and um, the policy purports to have a retrospective effect. It purports to go back into the past. APRA didn't even exist at the time that this policy purports to reach back to. Um, and so uh, the first instance judge found in favour of the insured valuers said, look, the exclusion clause doesn't operate to exclude the claim. With respect, um, perhaps it was inevitable that an appeal would follow.
the Court of Appeal found that the clause did apply to exclude loss, that the insurer could take the benefit of it. And in so finding, um, the court found that the purpose of the exclusion, and perhaps this is a good reminder for us to think about the fact that insurance policy really is a commercial agreement, but uh, the court found that the purpose of the exclusion is to guard against a certain risk profile. There's an insurer who's only prepared to take on a certain level of risk, and the insurer is not prepared to take on risk for a non-ADTI if there's no prudent lender clause. And that's exactly what the contract says. And so the court found that that weighed in favour of the exclusion applying and then further found that that construction added certainty for the parties, that the parties wouldn't have to say, oh, oh, did the absence of the prudent lender clause cause the loss? They wouldn't have to make that inquiry in order to understand what their obligations were because that inquiry is not in the contract. They'd simply sit down, read it and say, all right, not an ADTI all right, no prudent lender clause, the end. And all the parties would understand what they have to do. What that meant is that the clause, and I say this respectfully, operated um, in accordance with its terms. Now let's turn to a decision called Dalby and Allianz. This is a 2019 decision of the full court, the federal court. I'm sorry, I'm just getting an email that I'm trying to find out if it is urgent. And sorry, sorry, I don't think it is. Hopefully it's not. Um, so we've got the decision of Dalby and Allianz, uh, full court of the federal court, 2019. Ethanol producer stores grain in a number of bays at a refinery because that grain is later going to be converted into biofuel. Now, ethanol producer negotiates with the insurer and then takes out an insurance policy. And the insurance policy contains exclusions. And one of the exclusions is called the perils exclusions. And in essence, those are that the insurer is not going to accept liability for loss, blah, and I'm paraphrasing because I was about to say blah, 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 and that, of course, is not in the policy. <laughs> for loss or damage arising from spontaneous combustion, spontaneous fermentation or heating, or any process involving the direct application of heat. You know where we're going. Uh, we're going to one fateful morning when smoke was detected in one of the refinery's bays. Um, emergency services attended, and following some inspections, uh, the stockpile in that smoking bay and some neighbouring bays which had significant damage were discarded. The manufacturer makes a claim on the policy. The insurer didn't pay and said, hey, look, take a look at these perils exclusions. We don't have to pay. So the manufacturer commenced proceedings. At an interlocutory stage, the litigation gets referred out to an expert. And the question posed to the expert, to paraphrase heavily, is essentially, look, <laughs> What caused the damage to this grain? And what our expert says is that the damage is caused by self-heating, but I can't tell you exactly what caused the self-heating. It could have been rain, could have been ambient temperature, could have been the temperature of the grain when it arrived at the refinery, could have been humidity, could have been all these different things. And so we turn to the first instance decision. And at first instance, the judge holds that the word spontaneous doesn't apply to the word heating, that they're separate. 
which means that heating is part of the exclusion, heating of any kind, and so the insurer is not obliged to pay because any kind of heating is excluded. And the first instance judge goes on to say, look, if I'm wrong about that, frankly, the phenomenon is properly understand as spontaneous heating anyway, and so it falls within the exclusion, and so the insurer doesn't have to pay. So the full court turns its attention to the first instance judgment and says, uh, nope, in relation to the first position, uh, says that uh, spontaneous and heating should not be separated uh, and that spontaneous heating is excluded rather than heating more broadly. But the full court, or sorry, and I suppose I should say, the full court agreed with the first instance judge that the phenomenon seen was itself spontaneous heating and so was rightly considered within the bounds of the exclusion and so the insurer was rightly not required to pay. Now, in giving this judgment, um, the federal court counsels caution when thinking about jumping too quickly to contra-pref. And frankly, it's advice that, I say with respect, we might all bear in mind. Um, I spoke earlier about the danger of saying, oh, exclusion clauses, contra-pref, let's go straight away. No, um, the better approach is to firstly ask, is there ambiguity? And if the answer is no, it is an answer to be arrived at by way of contractual construction, as the court did here. If the answer is no, no ambiguity, as was the answer here, then that's the end of the inquiry. There's no need to jump up and down and take the march towards contra preferentum. And uh, it is that be cautious with contra preferentum uh, advice that the court offers here that I respectfully adopt. And our manufacturer's appeal was dismissed. The manufacturer attempted to say, look, we don't know why this self-heating occurred. It could have been the temperature, it could have been this, that or the other. And what the court said was, yes, that's right, but the fact that we can't attribute uh, a reason to the heating occurring does not say that the heating did not occur. The heating still occurred, we just don't know why. But the pivotal point is that the heating occurred rather than why did the heating occur. hope that makes sense. So we've had some adventures with uh, coffee and with some grain, with whatever else. What were the facts in that other one? Just slipped my mind, I apologize. Um, who cares? For the moment, uh, you can skip back in the podcast if you're interested. <laughs> Let's march on now to a construction site in Wales. Uh, this is a decision called Persimmon Homes and Ove Arup and Partners. It's a 2017 decision. Uh, now, there's been a suggestion that the principle of contra preferentum has largely fallen away in England and Wales, and I neither speak in favour or against that, but I say it by way of background as we work through this case. And why are we, I should probably also say, look, why are we making the jump to a different jurisdiction? We're doing so because I think it gives us a little bit of context on the local law. So, um, Persimmon is a construction consortium and it's developing a big site in Wales. And Arup is an engineer engaged to provide engineering services in, in various capacities, doing a lot of things over various years. And as Arup is executing its tasks and as construction is continuing and all this sort of stuff, asbestos is discovered on site. 
Now, what Persimmon, what the builder says, is Arup, the engineer, is negligent in failing to identify and report the asbestos at an early stage. Now, interestingly, the relevant contract between the parties includes the following sentence. Liability for any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded. <laughs> Apologies, is excluded. Now, in a scenario similar to that that faced the litigants in the, um, the, the, the Bank of New York um, value matter we talked about earlier, um, this matter came before the court as a separate question determination. Essentially, what does this clause mean? Because Arup, our engineers, deny liability. They say, look, it's in the contract. Liability for any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded. It just says it. There are the words there. And what Persimmon, what the builder says is, no, 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 the exclusion is properly read as liability for causing any claim in relation to asbestos is excluded. So the engineers would be able to get out of it if they caused the asbestos, um, but they certainly aren't able to get out of it if they failed to report it to us and failed to identify it. And what the court says is that a, that is a bizarre and nonsensical uh, interpretation of the clause. Uh, frankly, as engineers, it's pretty unlikely that uh, Arup was going to cause asbestos damage by you know, bringing asbestos on site. That was found to be a bizarre, uh, nonsensical interpretation. And instead, uh, the, the view was taken that the better position, the correct position, was that a liability for any claim and not for causing any claim was right. And uh, in delivering his judgment, Lord Justice Jackson makes some comments that I might read out in, in part verbatim because this is kind of the reason I turned to this judgment, just to sort of give a bit of context from a different jurisdiction on contrapref. And um, let's do it. Um, exemption clauses are part of the contractual apparatus for distributing risk. There's no need to approach such clauses with horror or with a mindset determined to cut them down. Contractors and consultants who accept large risks will charge for doing so and will no doubt take out appropriate insurance. Contractors and consultants who accept lesser degrees of risk will presumably reflect that in the fees which they agree. So I've made a little note in the margins here to say commerciality, not contrapref. And that's not quite what, <laughs> what His Honour is saying. <laughs> but I just thought it was worth reiterating that point that um, before we jump too quickly to contrapref, we remember that this is a commercial arrangement at first. So we've crunched through those decisions. Let us turn to... Um, some suggestions I make for some practical approaches you might be able to pursue. As I said before, this paper hasn't been drafted from the point of view of a commercial practitioner or a transactional lawyer. I'm a litigator, and so I'm coming from a litigator's perspective. Um, but when you're litigating on an exclusion clause, the die is cast by the time it gets to my in-tray. Um, I'm only litigating on the piece of writing that was agreed. And so the proceedings are won and lost by you, the commercial or the transactional lawyer who's negotiated and drafted the terms. So either um, uh, congratulations or commiserations. So um, 
you already know this, the approach you're going to take in uh, proceeding with an exclusion clause uh, is you're going to get some instructions and you're going to advise if necessary, you're going to engage in negotiations. Um, but there may be some finer things to consider. You might reflect on whether you're acting for a, the more powerful party to the transaction or the less powerful. Your advice might differ and it might well differ again if you're advising a party who's on an equal footing. Um, further, and this is I guess almost a, a business development suggestion, um, it's a good opportunity for you to flex your expertise in a certain industry. Um, if you're able to understand the sorts of exclusion clauses that other parties in the industry are facing, or the sorts of things that have previously been negotiated, or the sorts of risks your client might be facing, that is going to assist you in drafting the exclusion clause. But look, to add to those comments, let me just make another number of, of firm suggestions. But I say that essentially all these suggestions boil down to saying, pursue clarity and avoid ambiguity. Because remember, nine out of 10 times, or probably vastly more than that, the exclusion clause is just going to do what it says. And we can chew our fingernails about contra preferentum, and that's fine. But mostly, you want to make sure the issue never arises, and you want to make sure the issue never arises because you've been clear. So what are we going to do? We're going to avoid ambiguity. We're going to clearly identify what is excluded. We want to describe the very specific things that are excluded. Remember in Santos Coffee how we spoke about liability in connection with goods versus liability for pallets? Uh, we want to be clear about what's being excluded. We want to bear in mind that exclusions by implication, having an exclusion clause implied into a contract is going to be pretty unlikely to get up. Uh, there might be a provision you want to put in the contract about obtaining insurance and the quantum of the insurance and that sort of thing. We want to use separate clauses to give clarity and to aid severability. If we get there, we might need to do some slicing. And so we want to make sure there's a severance clause. We want to keep records of the negotiation because as I say, if this thing does come into my in-tray as a litigator in three years, I want to say, um, where's your file notes? Where's your emails? I'm interested in that. And this sort of uh, restates an earlier point I made that you want to monitor the sector. You want to be on top of the industry that your client's in as best you can. So occasionally um, in preparing papers in this space, you get asked, oh, how much liability can you limit? The answer to that in relation to exclusion clauses is um, for me to remind us all that it's a commercial term. And so the answer is, well, as much as the parties will agree. And that might be a whole lot, or that might be very little. But the question is a commercial one rather than a magical one. So we're getting near the end now, and I thought I'd just have a brief aside about warning signs, because in my experience, um, sometimes instructions that come from clients who say they need advice on an exclusion clause actually need advice on a warning sign. And I don't claim to be a negligence lawyer, so I'm just going to treat this paint with broad brush strokes on this one. Uh, the Civil Liability Act, Section 5H, there's no proactive duty to warn of an obvious risk. So the question is, well, what is obviousness when we are drafting a warning sign? And there's a decision that might assist you of the New South Wales Court of Appeal in 2007 called Cary and Lake Macquarie City Council, 
We've got a man riding a bicycle in a public park in the dark. He strikes a bollard. Now the bollard would have been clearly visible in the daytime, but it was not visible at nighttime. So the question is, well, is it an obvious risk? And in essence, um, you take your plaintiff as she or he comes upon the relevant risk. So the risk was found not to be obvious. And so there was a duty to warn that case, or sorry, uh, the, the thing I'll just linger on is, is the obviousness point. So at the time the plaintiff came upon the risk, it was not obvious. And then another case that I should not speak too long on because there are literally thousands of lawyers in this state who know more about it than I do, is the Roads and Traffic Authority and Dedera. Uh, we're dealing with uh, warning signs at the Foster Tuncurry Bridge. Now these relate to the risk of diving. So there are some warning signs around. And having rolled through first instance and then the Court of Appeal, the High Court says that when you are considering whether the erection of warning signs is done in a reasonable way, whether it's a breach of a duty, the test is not, was the risk-taking behaviour prevented? That's not the test. The test is whether the erection of the relevant signs was taking reasonable care in the circumstances. And I'm not going to sit down and give um, firmer suggestions about warning signs apart from read and understand these cases. Um, because it's a fiddly area that I would be wise to not make too many comments on now. <laughs> and with that quick aside, it brings us to the end of our discussion today. Uh, I really thank you guys for your attention. I'm sorry that um, you don't have all the wild applause and standing ovations that of course happened yesterday live um, when we were giving the talk. We also don't have the excellent questions and the great comments made from Shah. Um, Rosetti over at Tees Hodgson Ward and from Robert Schneider at HWL Ebsworth, um, both of whom made some super valuable um, comments and, and really added to the discussion. So that's just a quick recap. Remember we started off discussing the why of exclusion clauses? They're about allocating risk and so it's just sort of useful when you're thinking about advising on them to, to bear that in mind. We then spoke about the law relating to exclusion clauses, remembering that when, when, you, when we're thinking about one, question one is, well, is the clause ambiguous? Let's just read it, what does it mean? Does it have more than one meaning? If the answer is no, well then it has that meaning. And if the answer is yes, then we go through those various steps on the path towards contra preferentum. We worked through some exclusion clause case studies that I hoped helped you out a quick chat about warning signs and we made some practical suggestions and I think those practical suggestions really boil down to four words. We avoid ambiguity and pursue precision. I think if we go, so I said five words there, avoid ambiguity, pursue precision. That'd be my suggestion to you practically. So if we return to the question that opened this paper, what does your exclusion clause exclude? hopefully the answer's right there in the unambiguous clause you've drafted. Because if it's not, then your client might find itself facing the consequences. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day.